Hello, and welcome to the Silent Truth Podcast. I want to talk about it from this perspective. I want to say that pornography destroys us. What does pornography teach? Sex outside of context, sex without meaning, sex without connection. Sex trafficking is actually driven through the porn industry. There is help out there. There is a way out of that addiction. Are you ready to get help? Are you ready to take the first step and ask for help? Porn's hiding something. Let's talk about it. Hello, and welcome to the Silent Truth Podcast. My name is Warren Davey. My name is Tashara Oliver. And we will be your co-hosts for today. Uh, if you hear some odd noises going on today, uh, it is raining. Uh, there is some hail going on outside, so, you know, wild times, but we're safe. We're inside. We're dry. We're fine. But if you, if you hear little pitter-patters, that's what that is today. Uh, but speaking of today, joining us today, we have a special guest uh, from Unbound Ministries, uh, Director of Operations. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Katie Leach. Yeah. Welcome, Katie. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, so, Katie, your boss is Amanda Binger. Is that yes, correct? Yeah. Yes, she's awesome. So she spoke with us uh, at the Silent Truth event that we did uh, back in January. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what that looked like from your organization's perspective and maybe even a little bit about what Unbound is and how, how you all fit into this whole picture? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think everyone always equates pornography with human trafficking, and we're not saying it always does, but um, we have done enough research now to just believe that pornography really does affect the demand for sex trafficking. And so um, what we were able to do at um, The Silent Truth is Amanda came on and talked and just presented the research that we have found that... um, basically contributes pornography to the demand of human trafficking, both indirectly and directly. And so just a little bit about who Unbound is, what we do. Unbound is an anti-human trafficking nonprofit organization. I work for Unbound Brian College Station right here in the Brazos Valley. And we're we're about two and a half years old, um, but we actually just celebrated Unbound as a whole eight years of, of ministry, which is really incredible. Because you guys are, are are more than just Brian College Station, correct? Yeah, so we started in Waco, and we have an office in Fort Worth, and we also have an office in Houston, and then we have a couple national affiliates and then four international affiliates that are actually killing it. For instance, we have an incredible office in Unbound Mongolia that rescues girls off trains going into China being trafficked in China. And so um, I love these international and, you know, national partnerships. It's definitely a strength of Unbound. And so basically what Unbound does is we fight human trafficking through three ways. We do prevention and awareness, and that's kind of like the event we did for Silent Truth. We're, you know, making people aware about sex trafficking, human trafficking, labor trafficking. And we also do, you know, trainings to anyone that asks us to, whether it's four people or 400 people. I've done them both. Um, And then we focus on professional training. And so that's training places like nurses, social workers, uh, law enforcement, things like that. And then we also do survivor advocacy. And so that is massive. We work with victims identified right here in the Brazos Valley. We're working with three currently. And we worked with eight last year. And so uh, I think a lot of people think it doesn't happen here. Or, you know, how could it ever happen in my little town? But unfortunately, no place is immune to it. And so that's kind of what we do um, and who we are. Yeah. Thanks for kind of telling us a little more about what Unbound does. That's 
that's honestly it's so cool that there's so much partnership that you guys do especially with international um like branches just helping girls in like completely different countries that's so cool um i guess to just like go ahead and get down into the questions um we have some more of the audience questions from the silent truth event and so the first question is, I know my children are vulnerable to online pornography, but how do I start this conversation? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, we have recently kicked off our youth prevention program, and so we, um, we do parent and caregiver training specifically, and this is always a question that kind of comes up. They're like, okay, well, my kid's, you know, really young in elementary, primary school. Um, I don't think this content is um, applicable to them. And we're actually able to present the research that says that eight years old is the average age that an individual, a young kid, is exposed to graphic pornography. And so that's not just something you shield their eyes from on the TV screen when, you know, someone, you know, flashes something, but it's um, things that are graphic. Um, and, of course, that's a statistical average, so that doesn't mean that everyone's been exposed to it by then. But um, we always think that um, parents would do a much better job at explaining these um, these situations and what pornography is and what sex is in a healthy way um, in a controlled environment that isn't some made-up thing online. Um, and, and so, of course, they are vulnerable. Um, I mean, kids have an iPhone in their hand, an iPad in their hand from, you know, two years old now. Um, and, and so it, that's increasingly more vulnerable. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, we should be scared of that, but I think it does need to be an open and honest conversation as early as possible. Um, I think sometimes when we th um, parents think, okay, if I educate um, my kid about it, if I talk to them about it, then they're going to go find it or something like that. But um, honestly, our research shows that if there isn't as much curiosity, if they're actually told what it really is, that um, they're less likely to potentially, you know, fall into this um, as a, a normal curiosity is, is, is okay. Like they're supposed to be normal about, um, like curious about that. And so um, they should trust you. They should, you know, you love them and you're able to explain it in a, in a real way um, use real body parts. I mean, um, we also see that when parents are, you know, make up um, private um, names for private parts or things like that, that can actually perpetuate abuse um, because, uh, predators can use that um, in a way to normalize things, and then when you know children are asked about maybe a situation, they're not actually able to explain it well, and um, that can perpetuate abuse. And so it's just really good to be honest with your kids, be truthful, don't you know sugarcoat things. Um, kids are a lot smarter than we realize. Um, parents know that, and so um, I think that. The sooner the education, the better. Um, and doing that, um, you know, obviously you don't have to show them pictures or anything, but you can just talk to them and have a um, an open conversation where they can ask whatever questions they want, and you can open it honest, and you can answer them honestly. Um, I'm sure it's awkward. I don't have kids. I'm not trying to say that I do, but um, I think that they'll really appreciate that, and it actually is going to help them um, potentially prevent an addiction later on in their life. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the key thing there is that kids always have questions. You know, kids are notorious question askers. And so either they're going to get answers from their parents, people that they can trust, or they're going to look and find the answers themselves. And oftentimes that's on the Internet in, in really dark places. So I think open conversation, ultimately that's what it all keeps coming back to, you know, is um, how do we address the issues of pornography? It's all just about open conversation. 
Um, but you mentioned something interesting about language. You mentioned how uh, the language that we use can sometimes help perpetuate cycles and trends. And that's actually one of the audience questions mm-hmm. that we kind of received. Uh, so during the event, uh, we had these audience questions come, come in. And so one person asked, so many people use terms such as slut and pimp in their daily language. Do you think this uh, kind of language supports or perpetuates uh, human trafficking in any way? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in our presentations, we ask the question, what do you think of when you hear the word pimp? And everyone, you know, spouts off different things, but a lot of times it's like this furry coat and chains and like a cane and um, a guy on the corner. And um, I think, you know, those that kind of language, slut, pimp, um, rape, all of those things are used in pop culture. I mean, they're in every rap song almost, and they're just used um, normally even in our own everyday life. Um, I don't know if it exactly perpetuates human trafficking, but I do think it desensitizes people and makes people think less about you know, ass- assault. It makes people think less and normalize things like human trafficking. So in a way, it might perpetuate it, but I think more than anything, it makes victims' stories um, lose their meaning in other people's mind. It doesn't actually make them lose their meaning, but um, people are just so desensitized to that those kinds of words that it's less shocking, and it should be shocking. Um, rape is shocking. It's horrible. And so, um, you know, I hear people all the time. They're like, oh, that test raped me. Um, but if we think about, you know, what that actually means, it's it's horrible. It's abuse. It's something that um, we shouldn't tolerate in our community. And so, um, you know, we jokingly call our friends sluts or things like that, but that's actually language that could really trigger somebody. And so it's just really important to, you know, know your audience um, and think about the words we say, because the words we say um, really does matter. Um, Other language that I've seen that we've had issues with is sometimes even the news will say child prostitute. But that doesn't actually exist because a child can't consent to having sex, especially um, commercially. Um, And so there's no such thing as a child prostitute. And there's no such thing as child rape. Um, It's just rape. Um, There's no such thing as consensual rape. Um, It's just rape. Um, So I think sometimes um, the concepts are hard and so we, we lessen them. You can call assault and something you could say oh she got assaulted but she was raped you know um I think that our words really do have value and um and another thing we we like to mention is I think in the past um it's been called uh johns we refer to them as johns but that kind of gives them a name that gives them authority that gives them something to hide behind so we call them sex buyers because that's what they are um you know that's they're buying sex and so uh it's just that kind of language we try to we try to call it what it is um i think sometimes that people get called prostitutes when they're actually a victim or a survivor and so we try to use survivor whenever we can because that's more empowering language um, but yeah, I think our language overall really makes a difference. I think that um, just offhandingly using terms like slut and pimp certainly don't help the matter. And I think overall the end point would be they desensitize us. Yeah, I agree. I think um, like the just the process of us as human beings, like being desensitized to uh, like the pain and suffering of other human beings is something that is really speeding up, I think, especially with the introduction of, like, social media, um, in going on, like, the internet, and you can scroll and see a video of a, of a girl getting raped, and then the next video is, like, of a puppy doing, like, a handstand, and that's, like, that's jarring in a way that, like, 
those two things shouldn't be in the same like circle um and I think that you made a good point about how like it might not like language like that might not necessarily support like directly to human trafficking but it for sure desensitizes like us um to the issues of it and so one of the other questions um speaking about like being desensitized to problems was one of the audience had a question of how do I open up to my family about being sexually assaulted in the past? Yeah. So this doesn't necessarily mean that they're trafficked or anything, but, um, sexual assault is real. And I have experience with this in my past and I haven't even opened up to my family about it, um, completely. And so I think that's a really difficult issue and something I just want to say to whoever, you know, is asking this question, um, you don't actually have to tell anyone your story unless it's empowering for you to do so. If that's a part of your healing process, then absolutely share that. If that's something that you believe um, you need to share to receive healing, then absolutely do that. Um, but if that's something that you think would cause more harm and that's just something you feel like you owe people, um, you really don't owe anyone your story. Um, unless that is something that you want to share. Your story is your own, and no one can take that from you. And so just things to do if you do decide to share that with family members, especially can be very hard, um, is I would encourage you to go in with no expectations, um, which is really hard to do. But um, you can't control how you share your story. And so if your goal is I'm sharing this because it's going to be great for me to get it off my chest, put it out there, then that is absolutely a great attitude to have. If you're sharing it because you want to receive something in return, you can't guarantee that. Hopefully you do get that um, support and love and oftentimes you will, but not always. Um, I've shared my story with some, some, um, loved ones and, um, I think it's so hard for them to hear that they go into fixing the situation. Well, oh, if you just did this or if you just did this, um, and, and it honestly is a victim blaming, but, uh, they don't mean it to be, but it is. And so that's just something I want, you know, whoever is going through this to be aware of that that can happen. Um, but if you go in with no expectations, you don't care what they say, um, which is easier said than done. Um, then you are going to get that freedom because you shared your story and it, the control is yours now. Um, someone took your control away, but now um, your story is your own and you have control over that. Um, what we don't have control over is how people react and how people um, respond. But um, I, I will say as an encouragement, most people do respond with love. And even if they don't know what to say immediately, um, they oftentimes will come around to a loving response. And so um, I would just say, um, you know, having one-on-one -on -one conversations is typically better, just practically. And, um, you know, just, you know, prefacing with this is really hard for me to say, so, you know, I would like for you to respond in this way. Um, that actually gives them a framework of what to say because oftentimes they're a loss for words. So that's kind of how I would advise um, sharing a story of, of that magnitude. Um, but you know, there's everyone's different and everyone's story is going to be different. And so I kind of have to navigate that for your specific situation. Yeah. And honestly, my heart just breaks for the person who's asking this question, um, because that is such a difficult thing to have gone through, but also it can be very difficult bringing up hard conversations with family. Uh, a lot of times for a lot of people, there's a sensation of, are they going to still love me? Is, is there going to be judgment? How are, how are they going to react? Will they be angry? You know, will I still be worthy? 
but I definitely think that it's important to have those conversations. I, I, I think it's important to be able to heal together as, as a, as a, as a community, you know, you, you're not alone wherever you are. There are people who care about you, who want to help. One thing that could help if, if there's someone you're scared about opening up to, maybe opening up to your family is difficult or tough, um, or it could be scary. Maybe one thing that could help is if, if you're, if you're wondering, how do I open up to my family? Probably I, I can't speak for the individual asked this question, but you've opened up to somebody so if you feel more comfortable, you know, bringing your friend, bringing your pastor, bringing whoever you've already opened up to, to talk with you in those scary confrontations, that can also be a good, good way of opening up that conversation that I could see happening. Um, okay, and so the next question that we have uh, from our, from our uh, audience uh, says this, uh, not all porn stars are victims. Some genuinely want to pursue this career by choice. Is porn that uses legal, quote-unquote, teens, 19-year-olds, uh, 18-year-olds uh, who are legal consenting adults, uh, is that still wrong? Wouldn't the problems of abuse and pornography just get fixed with better legalization uh, and better regulations of what's going on behind the screen? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um, I definitely don't want to overgeneralize and say that you know, all pornography is, all pornographer, you know, actors are, um, the victims. A, a lot of them do choose that career and, um, you know, are willing participants, but there is no way when you click online or, um, to know that is a consensual act. There's no way to know if that is a minor or not a hundred percent. Um, something I will equate it to that I think is really, um, relevant is this is kind of similar to what we're seeing all over the world with the legalization of prostitution. And so there are three ways you can handle prostitution and sex trafficking. You can criminalize it, and that's what we do in the United States. Both the prostitute and the buyer are supposedly supposed to be arrested. Um, there is decriminalization, so making it completely legal, and that's kind of what this um, question is, is, is getting at, is if you just have better um, legislation and, and things in practice to make this better for the people that are willing participants, um, you know, wouldn't that be better? And so there's definitely studies of that. And then there's the Nordic model to making it where the, um, the you could call her a prostitute or the victim, whichever you, um, it, the situations obviously vary, um, is not criminalized, but the buyer is criminalized. And so those are really relevant to pornography because it, basically you're either watching it or you're doing it in person. And um, there, there is the difference. There's a screen in between you, um, but one is legal and one's not. And so um, in Germany, for instance, uh, they recently... Um, semi-recently, um, decriminalized all prostitution. So all um, the, the commercial sex industry is, is decriminalized. And so that means that um, there's legislation in place that is supposed to protect people that um, willingly become a prostitute. And there's supposed to be health codes. There's supposed to be all of these things. And the research has actually shown that these uh, women, it's almost all women, um, are actually getting abused at much higher rates and they're actually not being protected. Um, their industries, their uh, managers, their places of work are actually um, basically making it to where um, 
they are being victimized and having to do things they didn't actually sign up for or they're signing up for things that um, they didn't realize. And so um, it's just overwhelmingly when there's decriminalization, there is more um, victimization. And so um, that related to pornography is kind of what we see. And so I've read story after story of people that willingly got into this industry, were excited to make the money, were excited to do this kind of work. And then what they had to endure during the processes of, you know, their legal work um, was not protected. And they were oftentimes forced to have sex without protection, contracting um, STDs. They were forced to get abortions oftentimes or sign, they had to sign contracts saying that if they did become pregnant, they would have to get an abortion. They, um, you know, had to consent to having sex with, you know, upwards of 10 people at one time, um, which is, you know, I can't say that would be comfortable. Um, there's a lot of pain that can be endured in that. And so there's just no way to protect those individuals fully. Um, there absolutely could be laws that maybe could help it a little bit, but then where does enforcement come from? It's not going to come from the people that are making the money <laughs> off of the violent and graphic pornography, and those are the bosses. Um, and so it, it's just hard in that sense. Um, and so we know that the biggest viewable chunk of porn right now in the world is teenagers, which is by definition human trafficking because a minor can't consent to sex. Um, of course, there's 18, 19-year-olds that they mentioned, and that is legal, but um, they're so young, and um, it's definitely still it's still hard for the viewer, um, for sure, um, can definitely have negative effects on the viewer, even if that, those um, individuals do sign up for that. Yeah, and there's definitely countless stories of most of the time when it has that teen tag, it's implying that it's 18 or 19, you know, barely legal. But more often than not, like you, you have that story that we talked about a couple episodes back on our podcast about this 15-year-old girl who was being passed off as, as legal. You know, it, it's hard to say like, oh, that's a 15-year-old, that's an 18. This is three-year different. Like, really, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. So it's difficult to to distinguish what is, you know, being consensual or even what degree they consent to. There's lots of stories of girls who have been tricked into uh, filming pornographic scenes because they might consent to sex, but they don't consent to being filmed. Uh, or maybe even they consent to being filmed, but they don't know it's going to be uploaded on these easily accessed websites. You know, there's a huge spike in what's called revenge porn where... Um, guys take videos or have videos of ex-girlfriends of, of you know people who have sent them uh, compromising videos or images uh, and using that as a form of revenge as a form of leverage as a form of blackmail to uh, just have this sexual power over a girl to threaten them uh, or just even without threatening just uploading the videos out of spite uh, for the girl yeah. um, we had a story um come across and this girl was dating a guy online and she sent um, pictures to him that she thought she was sending to a loving boyfriend and then he just turned a switch and he said okay I have these pictures of you now so if you don't get on a webcam every night and do what 
I tell you to do, then I'm going to send these to your pastor and to your parents and to your sports team captain. And so basically threatening to ruin her life. And so every night she had to get on a webcam in her own bedroom in her you know house with her parents a couple of doors down and do whatever he said. And then he sold that footage all over the world. Um, and so she was, you know, her grades were dropping. She was really tired because she had to be up all night. And, um, finally she was brave enough to just tell her parents and, um, they were able to, you know, stop it. But, um, that is actually human trafficking because she was a minor. And so she just trafficked out of her own bedroom. And, you know, that's footage that she's never going to get back. And, you know, that has such hard effects on, um, her mind. Um, you know, and so, there's just no way, um, and, and there's just um, a really good um, video that we showed at the um, at, at Silent Truths called "Refuse to Click" that you can go view if you weren't there. But it just shows that um, you know everyone on stage or on on the screen can look really happy um, because that's you know anyone can look happy maybe for the duration of the video, but then what's their life life afterwards? And so even if they are um, you know a willing participant, um, what situations made them? become a willing participant was it um they had no way to pay for their housing um was it they have kids at home to feed and that this is just something they had to do and there's no way that they can make that much money otherwise um there are people that consent to this but that's by no means what they'd want to do um it's just a lot of social inequalities in the world that make people have to make certain certain choices that maybe you or I wouldn't have to make yeah absolutely and I think it's uh just worth noting that when in situations where you can't prove the ethical content, you know, that, that consent, that, that being of a legal age, in situ- if I were to tell you, you know, you're going to have 10 videos, three of them are something that's highly unethical and immoral, frankly, evil, you know, filming a minor and abusing a minor. Would you, would you say, yeah, that's a good thing. This is something that should continue. You know, would you, would you really say that's okay? <laughs> but even beyond that, let's say you have a, 35-year-old woman who could never be mistaken for a minor, you know, unmistakable. She's very outspoken. She talks about how she loves her career. You know, she has a, you know, she has some sort of way of, of, of vocalizing. Even outside of that, even if she thinks, even if she enjoys this, even if this is something that she supports, there's still a lot of negative effects that come uh, as a result of being a viewer. When you put an image of someone on a 2D screen, that's by definition objectification. You know, they become a 2D image to you. Uh, and so we had a psychologist, Dr. Gary Brooks, come and speak, and you can listen to uh, the audio of his speech uh, a couple episodes back on this podcast. Um, but there are negative effects that happen on the human mind as a result of being sexually attracted to images, being sexually attracted to objects. You know, at this point, you're not even sexually attracted to the girls on screen. You're sexually attracted to the images being portrayed on a screen. You know, you are becoming sexually dependent on objects rather than on human beings and there's just so much that goes on in the human psyche and in the human mind as a result of this honestly deviant attraction that happens because of a screen it disguises itself well and it says no 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 you're really looking at women and you're really looking at uh, at videos of women you know and it tricks you into that uh, that attraction but the way that it affects your brain and the way that it affects the way that you relate to other women um, in the real world uh, just there's overwhelming scientific evidence that that shows that there is a change that happens in the human mind as a result of this. 
Yeah, and just something I want to mention is that even those involved in the commercial sex industry, and we, we include that as um, people that are involved in pornography, legally or not legal, um, or those that, you know, are involved in strip clubs, exotic dancing, um, things like that, um, or in print material of um, pornography. And so there's actually so much research that shows the, the rates that they are assaulted um, and victimized are so high compared to, you know, people that aren't involved in the industry. And so even, you know, those are people that want to do this or consenting people that do this. Unfortunately, they are victimized often because of that objectification and um, because people think that they can, you know, have rights to their body or have rights to, um, you know, a service or something like that. And so, um, unfortunately, sometimes consent gets thrown out the window um, just because of the line of work that they are in. Um, and that's not, you know, necessarily their fault. That's just because um, people think, oh, they want it if they're, you know, dancing or something like that. And that's not the case. So just something I wanted to mention. Yeah. Um, just like always talking about this, my heart breaks just thinking about how like people in the pornography industry or uh, people who are exotic dancers or um, just industries like that, they're highly sexualized. Um, they become, they are seen as less human. Um, and that's how I think people get away with uh, doing the violence that they do to them. Um, Cause they don't see them as moms that have kids. They don't see them as like sisters um, or brothers or um you know dads or anything like that they just see them as uh, like an object like what we've been talking about and like they're people and they have dignity and value just like any other person does and um, just because you know circumstances in life maybe have like put them in a situation where they feel like they have no choice but to get on a camera every night and um, perform sexual acts in order to provide um, that doesn't mean that they're less valuable as a human being. Um, and I think sometimes that even without saying that, that is kind of like what is believed by people. Um, so kind of with that, the last question we had from the audience was, with the massive amount of studies that we have showing the negative effects of pornography compared to positive ones, why hasn't there been more legislation about this? Like, why is pornography so accessible if it is so bad for the actresses and for the viewers and like what should we do about it yeah so I don't have a great answer to this but the clear answer to me is that pornography is making more money than all professional sports combined um and so why are they going to want to stop this if they're making so much money behind it and so um to me it's just a money issue um, money talks, money makes legislation, money enforces things. Um, and so this is a massive undertaking. Also, I think, um, the research is oftentimes put to the side over, um, the, the moral debates and things like that. And no one's going to make legislation really off of moral arguments. I mean, some people do, but, um, it's, it's becoming less popular. And so, um, I think maybe, Hopefully, you know, if there's more research put out and if there's more um, direct correlations and, um, you know, causes been able to prove, um, maybe then they would have some more um, push from legislation um, besides just like a moral argument that this is bad for society. Um, that could help. But again, like I said, money talks and um, um, 
um, human trafficking itself is the fastest growing criminal industry in the entire world, um, right behind uh, drug trafficking. And it's, you know, um, at this rate, it will surpass drug trafficking. Um, I read this study about this a man that was both a drug trafficker and a human trafficker. He was in jail because of drug trafficking, but um, he was asked about human trafficking. And so we were asking, or not we, but um, they asked him, they said, um, why did you switch to, from drugs to, to humans? And he said, well, my product was reusable. And um, he also said that there was less um, infrastructure in the law and um, he was less likely to get caught with human trafficking than with drugs. And so that just tells you kind of what our value is on humans and um, where the demand is for sex services. Um, that's kind of why I think that um, there isn't as much much happening. Um, and unfortunately, it's growing, and so it seems like it's only going to get worse um, with the digital age, you know, upon us. And... Um, just with the demand continuing to rise, it's it's not going to change unless the demand changes. I don't have a great answer for that, but with human trafficking, one of the things that we see as one of the biggest pushes for demand is pornography. And so it's like this dog-eat-dog world where it's like we want to stop human trafficking, but we actually need to look at the demand factors. And so that's, you know... Um, looking into how we view individuals. Do we view them with worth or are we viewing them as a usable commodity? And so that's a big thing for us at Unbound is, you know, how, you know, we can help victims all we want. We can spread awareness, but how can we target demand? And, you know, we're brainstorming about that as best as we can. But it's kind of the same for pornography. We need to target those root causes to why is this happening. We need to, you know, have more research that's out there about, um, you know, the ne the adverse effects. And so that's just kind of my thoughts on why there's not more legislation. But in short, I think it's a money issue, honestly. Yeah, I would agree with you. So, okay, you said that the pornography or human sex trafficking makes more money than all of the professional sports. The commercial sex industry makes more money than all of professional sports so that's in the U.S. combined. So that's including the NFL? Yes. Oh, that's crazy because NFL makes a lot of money. Yeah, no, like <clears throat> the pornography industry alone is, by conservative conservative estimates, well over a $90 billion industry. Like there is some serious cash flow going on um, behind, behind the scenes with everything happening. Um, but Katie, what can we do like as, you know, small town USA, you know, where we're, we're just, uh, you know, individuals. Is there anything that can be done? Is there anything maybe local, some sort of way to volunteer and spend our time or to raise awareness of what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Unbound has quite a few options um, that you can become a volunteer. We just onboarded our training team volunteers that will um, give these awareness presentations. Our presentations last about an hour and um, anyone can request them. They're completely free. Um, and this will help raise awareness about human trafficking specifically. We do touch on pornography, but it's focused on trafficking, both labor and sex trafficking. Um, and so you could become a training team volunteer, or you can just ask us to come in, whether it's your church group, whether it's um, a student organization, whether it's your workplace. Um, we'd love to come in and train um, you to how to be you know, a freedom fighter, essentially. And so that is a big way that you can get involved. Um, 
You could visit our website, unboundbcs.org, to see more of our volunteer opportunities specifically. We also have an event coming up called Night of Hope, and so that's one of our biggest fundraisers of the year. Um, Like I said, we offer all of our services basically free, so we really do operate on the generosity of the public, of our community, and so if you want to purchase tickets, we're still selling those. It's March 26th. It's going to be a Night of Hope, really. And so um, Centoya Brown is going to come talk, and she is a, a survivor of child sex trafficking, and she actually killed her sex buyer because she was afraid of her life, and she you know takes full ownership of that, but she was actually tried as an adult at 16 and sentenced to life in prison. And so she served 15 years, and then the governor of Tennessee um, looked at her case, and there was kind of a public outcry, so he looked at her case and said, you know, she served enough time. She shouldn't have been tried as an adult. She was actually a victim. And so um, he was gra- she was granted clemency, and she's actually going to talk about her, her time in um, just kind of how uh, criminalization works of victims and um, how her time um, has been since and how God changed her life and how um, she's really walking in just being a survivor and so she's going to talk about that which is going to be great we're going to have silent auction things like that and so if you want to purchase tickets again that's on our website uh, unboundbcs.org we'd love to have you there um, and so that's kind of the things we have going on right now but again always request a training from us um, you know ask us how you could become a volunteer come to our events we'd love to to have you yeah absolutely and I think it's awesome that you mentioned uh, you know addressing the demand side of things uh, if you really want to take a stance against the supply of human trafficking, then you really have to take a stand against that demand. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here with Silent Truth. We're trying to, one, raise awareness to, to make people aware of that demand that's going on, but two, to also help people find find recovery from continual, habitual, or even addictive usage of pornography. We're here to help. We have programs. We have leaders. We have small groups available to uh, help you work past that. Um, so if you really want to uh, start addressing these issues, uh, you can always reach out to us. Uh, our Instagram and Facebook is at uh, Silent Truth Twenty. Uh, we'd love to get in contact with you uh, and just help you find recovery uh, through these issues of addiction. Uh, but I think that is all the time that we have today. So Katie, thank you again so much for coming and speaking with us. Thank you for representing Unbound so well. Uh, and we will be back with another episode in two weeks. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>